grown a thick skin and I've learned to be tough but nothing I do is ever good enough. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, and welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. Today's episode is a two-parter, but the other half of this episode is over on our Study Smarter podcast channel. So just search your favorite podcatcher for Inside the Boards Study Smarter to find uh, the other half of this episode on Lung Stuff. Uh, It's with Ted O'Connell, ITB's chief content officer and author of, among other things, USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Crush Step 1, plus Greg Rodden, the host of ITB's Physiology by Physio podcast. I did want to mention I have been advertising the wrong link for our Pay My USMLE contest. It's kind of complicated, but long and the short of it is... If you want to get your board exam fee paid for, thanks to physicianloans.com, go to bit.ly slash paymyusmle2. That's paymyusmle and the number two. We'll get right into the content. But just a reminder, please go download our iOS beta app and get access to the All Audio QBank to help you study for the boards or to study for your exams in school on the go. With that being said, now let's actually get started. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, So this is Greg Rodden, the newest member of the Inside the Boards uh, podcasting team. And today I have, I guess, someone who's more of a veteran on this team than I am. Uh, And he's also been around the block when it comes to medical education. So uh, today I have Dr. Ted O'Connell, uh, with me. And why don't you say hello? Good evening, Greg. Thanks uh, for having me on and pleasure to be talking with you. No way. No way. It's uh, it's an honor. And uh, I one thing I have to admit up front, I actually like read your book when I was preparing for step two and I loved it and it really helped. So in case anyone is uh, living under a rock and doesn't know who Ted O'Connell is, uh, he wrote the uh, USMLE step two secrets book which, you know, has exploded off the shelves, uh, M3 students all across the country and, uh, is widely recommended as a go-to resource for, uh, for studying for step two and I'm sure other stuff too. Well, thanks for that, Greg. I'm glad you found it useful and, and used it. And I guess this is a good chance for me to put in a pitch for the step two secrets podcast about a year ago. I started recording that book in audio format with the idea of putting it out uh, as a free resource for medical students to study while they're exercising, driving, doing chores, pretty much getting on with life with the idea that maybe we can buy back a little bit of time in, in your life since you'll be studying on the go and have a little more time with family and friends and make sure you get that exercise in. 
Right, exactly. And that 100% fits in with the the model of inside the boards, which is to help students reclaim time so that they can devote their time to the things in life that really matter, right? Absolutely. So uh, I guess to let people know about you know what we're going to be doing with uh, with this episode. So first, I wanted to do just like a quick you know interview kind of thing. And then we're also going to dive into some practice questions afterwards. So uh, my first question, how did you come up with the idea of Step 2 Secrets? Where did you, like, what brought you to that point? Well, I actually started writing uh, board review books towards the end of uh, medical school, and those are now long since retired. Uh, and then early in my career post-residency, I had done some writing during residency and made some connections. And pitched the idea of a clinical book. It's called Instant Workups that actually became a series of three books for Elsevier. And once that was published, that actually led me to taking over the Step 2 Secrets book. I I can't take credit for being the original author of that. There was another author who did the first two editions, and then I took it over from him in the third edition and revamped it and fortunately helped it take off even more than it had done. And then that led into step three secrets and then crush step one. Um, so those, I, I co-authored both of those. Those were original uh, books that did not exist. So it was just kind of being fortunate with my relationships with the publishing company and um, being in that, that world of clinical and medical education. Yeah. And it's amazing how just kind of those serendipitous opportunities come across our plate. And when we choose to take them, they can really change the trajectory of our lives and our careers and opens up so many doors and, you know, just opens our eyes to possibilities that we weren't even really aware of. Yes. I'm a strong uh, proponent of saying yes to opportunities. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, you do need to make sure that you're balancing life and family and, and other obligations and exercise and wellness. But I do think it's important to say yes as much as you possibly can. You can always, down the road, step aside from certain professional uh, opportunities. And you know if they're not meshing with everything else that you're doing, you can give them up later or hand them over. But you know, saying yes, it, it builds relationships, gives you chances to do new and interesting things. And, and that's kind of the way I've approached a lot of this. Very cool. And when you approach your career? Like when you started out, were you thinking that you were going to be going into medical education or that you were going to focus on education of uh, learners? Yes, Greg. I, I think I did identify that as an interest pretty early on. When I was in college, I, I spent two summers as a high school summer school teacher and kind of identified an early interest in teaching. And then during medical school, realized that as a third and fourth year medical student, I had something to offer to the more junior medical students and and really embrace that role as a fourth year med student. And then when I got into residency, same thing. I just realized that I really liked being in that medical education realm. And, and so decided pretty early on, I don't know if it was during medical school or residency, but thought that I would like to be part of a residency faculty or a medical school and really be in that milieu and and then the things just kind of started to roll from there. I, I was writing and doing some research and made sure I got involved in teaching of medical students and junior residents. And uh, so it all kind of came together for me. Very cool. Very cool. And then it sounds like all of that has kind of 
pushed and pulled you into your current day job, which is you're a, a residency program director, right? I am. And so that kind of allows me this really unique opportunity to shape a residency program and be involved in the professional development of residency and students. It's one of the things that I enjoy most about the job is being able to see somebody go from medical student to first-year resident all the way through and then have them as colleagues and, and think that I had at least some small role in their career and professional development. And it allows me to still see patients. I, I do both inpatient and outpatient medicine. It allows me to teach directly one-on-one -on -one with learners at multiple levels. So yeah, I, I found it to be a really dynamic, interesting position. That's, that's fantastic. So I guess thinking about who our audience is here, we're, we mostly have like preclinical medical students listening to this, maybe some M3s as well. And I know from experience that a lot of them are a bit worried about like the interview day and some of the things that uh, will be coming their way when they're interviewing at different programs. So as a fully fledged residency program director, have you got any tips that you want to share for our very anxious audience? Well, I think I would tailor the tips that I have more around kind of what the specific questions and concerns are. Uh, for a few years now, I've been doing at one of the local medical schools a session on preparing for third and fourth years and, and kind of prepping yourself for the whole interview season. And I realized that the same questions were coming up over and over again. So I actually started to put my answers to those questions in written format and a few in, in video format, but mostly written. Um, they're available on my website at tedxoconnell.com. I figured I might as well put them out there for as many students and applicants as possible just to kind of ease that um, the anxiety around it and set everybody up to be um, ideally prepared for the interview season and be able to put your best foot forward. So within that, if, they, if there were any specific topics you wanted me to hit, we certainly could. But otherwise, those resources are very definitely available for students to take a look at. Excellent. Excellent. Well, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely throw a link into the show notes, uh, that people can check that, uh, that stuff out and they can look at their leisure to see what advice you've got. So another thing that, as you were saying that came to mind was you seem to have a, you seem to focus on providing resources for students that are mostly free. Like, I mean, your, your step two secrets podcast is completely free. So is that something that you're trying to, I guess, change the culture of medical education in a way? Like, is that something that you're trying to shape? Yes, I am hoping to have an impact on that. Um, you know, there there is always a business component to it. The the publishing company needs to make their money on the books that we put out, or they wouldn't be able to support anything that we're doing. But you know, there are these things with audio and video that really are probably the next step in the evolution of medical education. And I'm hoping to, you know, be part of that that coming change, um, and. And Elsevier has been very supportive in terms of allowing us to put some of that content out in audio form. You know, the the amount of debt that medical students are currently coming out of school with is really a tremendous burden. By putting this stuff out, it's not making a huge dent, but it's making 
some impact on that, I hope. And now we're seeing some medical schools like NYU and the Kaiser School of Medicine uh, that are going to be tuition free. And that's, you know, another attempt to impact that. So I'm trying to do what I can. Um, That's where the idea for Exam Circle came out. It was to crowdsource a really high quality step one and step two question bank. Um, and then, you know, get students to create the questions and then make sure we're reviewing them and, and, and have this really high quality free resource. Uh, I get that in the early days, nobody's going to rely on that alone, but I'm hoping that someday that will be the primary resource that everybody uses. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to bend the curve of what student debt looks like a little bit. My, my career has been very good to me and I'm trying to give back. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, having recently read the white coat investor, my, uh, my brain has been very focused and very conscious of debt and thinking about investments and thinking about retirement and thinking about saving money and spending prudently. And, uh, yeah, so I, I would certainly appreciate that. I'm sure that everyone else is appreciating that. I, I hope so. Um, and I have not read that the white coat investor yet. I probably should. Um, it sounds like it's up the same alley as the millionaire next door and just kind of keeping your expenses in check so that you can have ownership over the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, one thing that, so I guess we're giving like free publicity here, but, uh, one one thing that I would definitely recommend to any fourth year medical student is to, uh, is to check out that book. Um, it'll really put your mind at ease by giving you a, essentially a plan for how to pay off your debts and think about uh, investing and all that. So anyways, one thing or the real reason that people are are wanting to listen to this podcast, in addition to getting to know uh, the wonderful Ted O'Connell, is they want to hear us break down some questions. So if uh, if you're feeling ready for that, I am ready to go too. Yeah, let's do it, Greg. All right. All right. So I will start us off with our first question here. A 66-year-old man with congestive heart failure, chronic kidney disease stage 3, and hypertension presents to his primary care physician with new-onset dyspnea that began yesterday. He missed a day and a half of his medications because of, quote, traveling and feeling ill. He says that he got winded just walking from the parking lot to the lobby, which is abnormal for him. Vital signs are significant for tachycardia to 116, respirations of 26, and O2 saturation of 93% on room air. Heart and lung sounds are clear on exam. An EKG was ordered in the office, which showed sinus tachycardia with no ST changes or T-wave inversions. Chest x-ray was clear. Which of the following is the next best step in management? Is it A, cardiac catheterization, B, aspirin, C, echocardiogram, or D, CT angiogram? And the correct answer is D, CT angiogram. So, Dr. O'Connell, how do we approach this kind of question? So, looking at this question, Greg, uh, a few things kind of jump out from the vignette. The first is you have this patient with congestive heart failure and chronic kidney disease, He's coming in with dyspnea after missing a day or two of his medications. And so the things that I immediately start to think about is, is this a CHF exacerbation? Because um, medication non-adherence and dietary non-adherence are really big causes of that. But we get the information here that 
a chest x-ray was done and looks clear. So we don't see any signs of pulmonary edema or other fluid overload, such as a pleural effusion. And we have the information that the EKG was already done for us and shows that there are no ST or T wave changes and only sinus tachycardia. So we can start to think that, well, perhaps this is not a CHF exacerbation. It could be an acute coronary syndrome uh, with the sinus tachycardia and the dyspnea. So aspirin is still kind of a consideration here as, as a possible right answer. But then as we get into his vital signs, he's tachycardic, he's uh, tachypnic, and his O2 sat is on the lower side. We don't necessarily know his baseline, but that's lower. And basically that gets us in, you know, aspirin without knowing that he has acute coronary syndrome, probably not necessarily the right way to go. I don't think we would want to take him for cardiac catheterization without getting a troponin and having a little bit more data, especially with an EKG that is fairly unremarkable. Uh, we don't think that this is a CHF exacerbation. Uh, so an echocardiogram, it doesn't really make sense to jump to that. And then what what I'm seeing here is with this, the low O2 sats and tachycardia, we have to consider the possibility of a pulmonary embolism, especially we've got that keyword of travel in, in the vignette. And as we all know, the most common finding for a pulmonary embolism on an EKG is tachycardia, which he has. The, the kind of classic one is the S1, Q3, T3, although that's a much less common finding than is tachycardia. So I would go with CT angiogram as, as you identified as the correct answer. Yeah. So honestly, I don't think I have anything to add to that. I mean, that was a great thorough explanation uh, that ruled out all of the incorrect answer choices. There are probably other things that uh, that the emergency department would want to do, like you said, like getting those troponins, um, even though his uh, EKG is currently normal. Um, you know, you don't know if that might change. And in all likelihood, an emergency department is just going to have an abundance of caution with a guy like this, and they're going to get the troponin. Yes, absolutely. And if that were a choice, I think we would all go for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but according to uh, according to the answer choices, that's not an option. And so, among the answer choices, best one is going to be CT angiogram to look for a pulmonary embolism. Okay, very good. Do you want to take the next one? I'd be happy to, Greg. So we have a 20 year old female who presents to her college health center with cough and fatigue for four days. She also complains of headaches shortness of breath, and subjective fever, but she denies myalgias, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. She is unaware of any recent sick contacts at her school. Her vitals and exam are within normal limits. Chest x-ray shows streaky infiltrates bilaterally. A rapid strep and flu tests are negative. What is the most appropriate medication to prescribe for this patient? Is it A, oseltamivir? B, ceftriaxone, C, azithromycin, or D, levofloxacin. So Greg, how you want to take us how you would think about this particular case? Sure, yeah, yeah. All right, so we have 20-year-old 20, 20 female. 
and we're not really given any past medical history. So we're assuming that she's a healthy 20-year-old female. And she basically has an acute onset for the past four days, uh, illness, flu-like illness, essentially. Um, then we find out that her vitals are normal. If she had the flu, we might be leaning towards, you know, looking for a fever. Um, and then we find out that she has uh, rapid strep and flu tests that were negative. So that should be pointing us way away from the flu as a, as a potential diagnosis here. Okay. Then we also see that she has the chest X-ray and the chest X-ray shows bilateral streaky infiltrates. Okay. So that is kind of going to be like a buzzword um, for like an atypical pneumonia. So, Atypical pneumonia can present pretty similar to flu. It's not usually as severe as a, as a flu infection is going to be, but it's going to have some flu-like symptoms. Another thing pointing us away from the flu is myalgias. So among the answer choices here, the best answer choice is going to be C, azithromycin. And the reason that it's going to be C, azithromycin is since we're leaning towards an atypical pneumonia here, that's that's really going to be the best uh, the best drug to cover the most likely bug, which is mycoplasma pneumonia. If if it's a bacterial uh, atypical pneumonia, the other answer choices so oseltamivir. So that would be going for uh, the flu. Another thing about her presentation, she presented at day four, so oseltamivir or tamiflu uh, really isn't indicated unless they're presenting within the first forty eight hours. Um, so we can rule, we can rule that one out. Uh, next answer choice was ceftriaxone. So, and also for answer choice D, that was levofloxacin. So those two were getting at community acquired pneumonia, right? Those are, those are both good options for community acquired pneumonia. Most common cause of community acquired pneumonia, nine times out of 10, it's going to be strep pneumo. Um, ceftriaxone and levofloxacin can cover for strep pneumo, but she doesn't have solid like clear ball of pulmonary infiltrate that would make you think that she has like a, a low bar pneumonia that you would see with strep pneumo, especially that you would see with strep pneumo on a board style exam question. Okay. So among the answer choices here, uh, really the best option is going to be azithromycin covering for atypical pneumonia caused by mycoplasma pneumonia. Yep, that's great, Greg. Um, the only things that I think I might add here is, as you said, with ceftriaxone, that would treat a community-acquired pneumonia uh, if it was caused by typical organisms. In this case, we're calling this an atypical pneumonia, and ceftriaxone doesn't give us coverage for the atypical organisms. So that's a good way to rule that one out. Um, levofloxacin, on the other hand, covers both the typicals and the atypicals. It's one of the so-called respiratory quinolones, along with moxifloxacin. Right, um, but in this right, case, we point. don't need that typical coverage since it looks more like a, a walking or a typical pneumonia. Um, very broad spectrum. You have the issues with tendinopathy associated with levofloxacin. You have a much more targeted choice with the azithromycin. So that, that makes a lot of sense to choose that one. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we don't want to be reaching for a big gun like levofloxacin if we don't need it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Very cool. Um, 
So we, we're rolling, man. Uh, we're going to move on to the next one. So a 67-year-old woman with past medical history significant for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, systolic heart failure, with most recent ejection fraction of 40%, and COPD dependent on two liters of home oxygen, presents with five days of shortness of breath and productive cough with clear sputum. Her sister at home recently had a cold. Significant vitals are respiratory rate of 24, O2 sat of 91% on 2 liters. On physical exam, the patient is obese with moderate pitting edema in bilateral lower extremities. She's using her accessory muscles to breathe. Chest auscultation reveals a 1 out of 6 systolic crescendo-decrescendo murmur at the right upper sternal border. Bibasilar crackles are heard on pulmonary exam, and dullness to percussion was noted at the lung bases. Chest x-ray shows blunted costophrenic angles. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, community-acquired pneumonia, B, CHF exacerbation, C, COPD exacerbation, or D, acute bronchitis? So how would you approach this one? So... Yeah, Greg, as you were reading this, um, so let's give everybody the correct answer and then kind of run through how to think about it. Um, so the correct answer is choice B, CHF exacerbation. Uh, I will tell you, as I was originally hearing this early on in the vignette, I was really uh, interested in going for COPD exacerbation. You, you have this patient um, whose EF is not that bad, it's 40%. Uh, but she's got pretty bad COPD if she's oxygen dependent at home. That's pretty significant. And then we hear shortness of breath and some productive cough. That's making me feel like COPD exacerbation. Um, but then it does not give us anything about fever. Uh, she is tachypnic. She's a little hypoxemic, although that may be her baseline, although that's on oxygen, so perhaps not. But then we start to hear about the pitting edema in the legs. Um, she's got a murmur, which doesn't really make me go one way or the other. Uh, but bibasilar crackles, again, you wouldn't necessarily find that with a COPD exacerbation. She's got dullness to percussion at the lung bases, suggesting that there's some fluid down there. And then we get this chest x-ray that shows blunting of the costophrenic angle, suggestive of fluid there in the form of pleural effusions. Uh, and then going through our options, this does not sound like a community-acquired pneumonia. She's not febrile. She doesn't have chest pain. She doesn't have purulent sputum. We don't see a lobar infiltrate. So I think we can reasonably rule that one out. The COPD exacerbation, again, she's not having fever. She's not having a purulent cough or any real change in her baseline, but it was probably her baseline sputum production. Acute bronchitis doesn't really fit, and that's kind of a little bit of a junk term <laughs> right. anyway. Um, uh, so I would go based on the whole constellation of her clinical presentation and findings with CHF exacerbation as the choice. Yeah, yeah. And, um, let's see the, the only other things to mention here, uh, in all likelihood. So you're the, you're the attending your medical, your medical student is, uh, presenting this case to you. What else would you want to know about her like COPD status since she's on home oxygen? 
Yes. I, I mean, I would love to know what medications she uses at baseline. I would want to know whether, you know, part of the gold classification system for determining how bad somebody's uh, COPD is, is how often do they get exacerbations? Do they get hospitalized for their illness? That That's the real key t- besides their airflow limitation to determine if they're a gold A, B, C, or D. So I would like to know some of that. I would like to know if she's had PFTs, uh, and hopefully she has. If she's had, you really need that for a diagnosis of COPD. I'd like to know what her FVC is because that'll give me a sense of what her baseline airflow limitation is. Uh, I would want to know if, you know, if the, part of my original question about does she get exacerbations, like how often are they happening? How often does she need to be on steroids? Um, what's her baseline oxygen saturation um, on, I guess, on the two liters, just so I get a sense of kind of what, you know, what her vibe is in terms of how bad her COPD is. Right. Absolutely. And so uh, that's something that I, I think is always worthwhile pointing out is like just how contrived some of these little vignette uh, scenarios really are like when you're thinking as a clinician, like you're not thinking like this isn't the most straightforward thing in the world. Like the real life is just so much more complicated. You want so much more detail uh, about the patients before you come to a uh, decision, but on the boards, it's a totally different, it's a totally different world. They exist in a different world and anything that's not in the vignette probably should not be assumed or anything like that. Definitely don't assume, don't incorporate. Yeah, you're going based off the information that you have. You know, like that previous case we were talking about with wanting a troponin and some labs. In this case, you know, besides what we're seeing here, you know, getting a BNP would be helpful, knowing what a renal status is. There's plenty of other um, information that we would want to gather, both in terms of history and workup. But we're given what we're given, and that's what we have to work That's right. That's right. Very cool. All right. That's it for this one. Um, We've got a lot of exciting things coming down the pike. Um, If you appreciate us as much as I appreciate you listening to this, please subscribe to Inside the Boards on your favorite podcatcher and leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Currently, our Study Smarter podcast is number two on Apple's charts, and those ratings and reviews really help in the rankings. Finally, don't forget, we've got a couple other podcasts, Physiology by Physio for you first and second year medical students, The Medical Nemonist, uh, hosted by Chase DeMarco and focused on accelerated learning techniques and memory hacks, and a partnership with Physio, the guys at Physio themselves, uh, the USMLE Step 1 Success Stories podcast, the playbook of those who dominated the USMLE. Thanks to the guys at Better Days for letting us use the track Tired Bones, Weak Minds off their 2018 uh, release, What You Did to Me. Uh, Would have been perfect for an ortho episode, but we're going to feature them this month. Um, You can check them out on Spotify or wherever you listen to music. You know, as they say, pop punk isn't dead. So go check out Better Days on Spotify or wherever you listen to music. And... If you want to hear something in particular, 
as intro music for the podcast, please send an email to info at Inside the Boards, and we will try to get permission to use that song, and we will give you a shout-out. All right, that's it for this one. We'll see you back next time. Thank you for listening.